All right, let's turn the, let's turn the corner into some teaching. Uh, a few weeks ago, we said that um, as you read the Gospels, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the account of Jesus' life and ministry, if you read through looking on purpose for the thing that Jesus talks about most, it will become crystal clear to you that what Jesus talks about most is the kingdom of God. Especially when you read the Gospel of Matthew, nearly 50 times in 28 chapters, what he talked about all the time, what he was about, what his life was about, was simply the kingdom of God. And we said a few weeks ago that the story of the Bible is really, this, uh, it's, it's really a story about kingdoms. So we took some time a few weeks ago to establish the framework through which we should see the kingdom of God coming to earth. So then we asked the question, what does it actually mean to live under King Jesus' reign? What does that mean? And in answer to that, we said, an encounter with Jesus forces every single one of us to deal with our core issues, the darkest parts of our character, and to allow his mercy his love, his wisdom to redefine who we are, to change the way that we engage with our Heavenly Father and with all the people around us. That's how we got into this topic back on December 1st. And then a couple weeks later, we looked at some verses in Matthew 13 where Jesus tells uh, kind of story after story and each time saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom that lands smack in the middle of everyday life. So even here, Jesus said, in the harshness, in the mess of life, his kingdom is the way things actually are. And Jesus' kingdom invites us to immerse ourselves in the whole gospel that he came to preach. We get to listen and consider and think through the incredible possibilities of kingdom living as Jesus taught it. And the practical promise of our faith journey is this, that as we live in faithfulness to Christ the King, his reign will have a transformational effect on us. Honestly, anything less than that is not what Jesus came to earth to tell. So part of the problem, as we said a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, is that we are so inclined to try to make things happen for God. You ever found yourself there? But what he wants us to do is just live in the dimensions of what's already there. He's just inviting us to be a part of what he's already doing. So we talked about this tension that describes life in the kingdom. The tension, and the, honestly, acknowledging this tension helps me understand a kingdom that is already here and also not yet here, because both are true. And in a mysterious but powerful way, the condition of our hearts radically dictates what the kingdom is going to look like in our lives, which demands that we ask of ourselves, what kind of heart do I have? And just as Jesus entered our world and you know, set his own interests aside and suffered and died to bring life, you and I are invited to do the same in his name. You and I are invited to embrace the vision of Jesus and enter into our world as his representatives. So those were the last two messages I taught before Christmas. And uh, it appears that this has become a series. <laughs> those messages on the 1st and the 15th of December when we talked about the kingdom of God really provide the context for the passage we're going to look at today and where we're probably going to land for the next few times that I'm at the podium. So in part one, which was on December 1st, we, we were in Matthew 4 where Jesus kind of arrives on the scene and launches his public ministry and announces that the kingdom of God is arriving. That's in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, it begins what we know as the Sermon on the Mount or for the purposes of, of gaining a better understanding of what it means to do life in the kingdom of God, let's call it Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the broken reality of the kingdom of God. 
you get that? Did you write that down? Because it's a bit of a mouthful, so maybe we'll just stick with Sermon on the Mount. But it is Jesus' manifesto for his kingdom. Let's start off in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a strange, odd, brilliant, provocative way to start off a sermon with this list of blessings, or what we often call them the Beatitudes. That word Beatitudes is simply from the Latin translation of the text. The word blessed, and if you grew up in a church tradition using certain translations of the Bible, you probably pronounced it blessed. I'm pronouncing it blessed, because it's 2020, not 1611. So the word blessed is actually a word in the original language in Greek that's used all over Jewish writings from around the time of Jesus. And it's really hard to translate into English because we have no equivalent of it, in all honesty. We have no equivalent of this word in our language. So some translations have blessed. That's how my Bible reads. I'm using the NIV, the New International Version, and it's just my preference. It's an okay rendering, but the tricky thing is, make sure we catch this, it's not the word uh, that's used in, in Greek or Hebrew for blessing from God, not the same word. It's not the word that's used in Greek or Hebrew for divine favor over your life. It's not that word at all. It's a completely different word, and it has very little, honestly, to do with God. Another way to translate it is happy. You've probably heard that. Some translations of the Bible use the word happy. Tricky thing for that, uh, with that for us, is happy comes with all the overtones of American culture. The world that we live in, right? Because this is where we live. You know what I mean, right? The pursuit of happiness thing, which, dare I say it, isn't really a biblical concept at all. So really, it was a salutation. It was more of uh, something you would say to open a conversation. So a number of scholars agree that the best kind of equivalent we have, it's not quite right in English, but the best we have would be more like congratulations. So when something really great would happen to you, the birth of a child, you land a new job, this or that or something else, somebody would walk up to you and say, congratulations, blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you. You know, it's like, wow, that's good for you. So Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount with this word over and over again that we could substitute in, congratulations. The Greek word is makarios. But then what follows is a list of eight types of people, but it's kind of a bizarre list when you see it in terms of congratulations. It's those who mourn. It's the meek. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So if you're new to Jesus and the writings of the New Testament, if this is your first time reading through the Sermon on the Mount, my guess is you're thinking, you know, what? Jesus, you out of your mind? Like, congratulations, you're mourning? Congratulations, you're poor? You know, what's that mean? Congratulations, you're being persecuted for righteousness? You know, in, in what universe is anything on this list a good thing, Jesus? 
I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, Jesus, you're fantastic. I think you're a great guy, but you spend too much time, you know, out in the hot Israeli sun or something, because this doesn't make any sense to me. What is going on here? The blessings or the Beatitudes, in my humble opinion, are one of the most important of all the teachings of Jesus. So right here, first thing in the Sermon on the Mount, with, G, with Matthew's collection of all the most important teachings of Jesus in one place, it's right at the top, one of the most important teachings of Jesus. But I would also argue that it's one of the most read, most misinterpreted, most misapplied teachings of Jesus in the church. Because I think a lot of people read this, and I think they kind of warp and twist it out of shape with the best of intentions. So I think as we consider what it means to live out the values of the kingdom of God, we need to get this part right. So let's talk about what this list is not. First of all, this is not a list of virtues. I think the main mistake that people make is they turn the blessings into a list of virtues or of good things. So um, I read quite a few scholars as I prepare for this teaching, and it's odd to me um, to read a few kind of older, more popular level teachers interpreting the text based solely on its English translation and in our modern context. And they argue that it's a list of virtues. And they really do all kinds of textual gymnastics to, to get there and to kind of twist everything into a virtue. So it becomes, you've probably heard this if you've spent any time around church, becomes the poor in spirit are those who are dependent on God and just really know how badly they need God. And those who mourn are those who mourn over what? You, I know who the church people are. You mourn over sin. Your sin or the sin of the world. The meek are those with power under control. It's not the weak because we don't like that. It doesn't fit into the, our context. It's those with self-discipline who have power to kill you but choose not to. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who ache for like more of God. You know, and I've heard all of these interpretations. In fact, they're the very interpretations that I've heard most in the 20th and 21st century evangelical world that I've spent my whole life in. But Jesus doesn't actually say any of that. And I just want to, I just want to um, encourage you this morning so that this doesn't become like, oh, cult leader Todd said, I used to believe this, now I have to believe that. Please do your own research. I'm challenging you to go into some really familiar passages of scripture and dig deeply to find out maybe where the filter that you've interpreted through it might have been uh, a little twi- little twisted and a little inaccurate for example he says the poor there are two greek words for poor the first is a word that means what we would call the working poor okay those are people who live paycheck to paycheck and you're like oh dude yeah i know right so but that's not the word <laughs> that's not the word The word Jesus uses here is a word that means living hand to mouth. Abject poverty right on the brink of starvation. Then he adds this phrase in here in Matthew, in spirit, the poor in spirit. In Luke 6, where he's teaching the same thing in a different setting, he says the poor, that's it. So Matthew includes the phrase in spirit, why? What's that mean? Dallas Willard and a few others translate it, people who have absolutely nothing to offer at a material level, that's poor, are living hand to mouth or even at a spiritual level, there's your poor in spirit. So they're not some picture perfect, virtuous, whatever. I think that by poor, this is just how simple I am, that what Jesus actually meant by that, ready? Was poor. Now, let me ask you, is poverty... Carefully answer this, a good thing or a bad thing? 
Don't answer out loud. Please don't answer out loud. It's not a trick question. It's a bad thing. And I'm not a prosperity gospel guy. Let me just give you my context. Um, in the, first of all, none of us in this room are poor. In the last six years, several of us have been to Guatemala on medical mission trips. Some of us three times in the last six years. 31 different people from our church have been on that mission. Guatemala is, it's weird because it's still considered a developing nation um, with uh, economy, not, not considered a developing nation um, governmentally wise, which is hard to believe because it's just ridiculous, but it is considered by the UN to be a developing economy. So they're kind of stuck in the middle here. While it's the largest economy in Central America, it's still one of the poorest countries in Latin America. And honestly, one of the most significant growth experiences of these missions for us is seeing firsthand what abject poverty looks like and what its effects are, what it means for physical health. And we like to complain about our healthcare system, what it means for the human spirit. The most common takeaway from this experience for us isn't, wow, we are so blessed to be Americans. That's not the takeaway. Usually it's an overwhelming sense of helplessness. And so, not because God has promised us everything we want, not because somehow, you know, our right as Americans is to get what we want, what we think we need, but based on what some of us have seen from poverty, I say poverty is not good. And I don't think the solution to poverty is wealth. I'm certainly not saying that poverty is bad, wealth is automatically good. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, if you'd like to hear more of my thoughts on this topic, I'd be happy to join you for coffee sometime. Maybe you should um, go on the dark web and find my blog or <laughs> dive into my thoughts on this and many other topics which will illuminate your life. Anyway, sorry, a bit off topic. Uh, at a socioeconomic level, I don't think Jesus is saying, don't worry about it, poverty, you know, whatever. It's, a good, it's all good. Don't worry about it. I don't think Jesus is saying that at all. Same with those who mourn. Jesus does not say those who mourn over sin. And he does not say those who mourn over the state of, you know, whatever. He just says those who mourn. He says if you are mourning, if you are grieving, if you've suffered a loss, if over the holidays it, it still hurts. When Jesus says blessed are you if you mourn, I don't think he's saying that in your life that you think this is a bad thing, it's actually a good thing. That's not what he's saying at all. He says blessed are the meek. This word here does not mean power under control. That's just not what it means. It means powerless. Those with no power at all. And considering Jesus' audience... It was speaking to the oppressed, those living under injustice. Remember, Jesus is speaking to people under the boot of the Roman Empire. It's the first century. He's up in, northern, up in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. They have no power at all. Like, they don't even get a vote, all right? So for the most part, his crowd is peasant farmers living on ancestral land, in debt, usually in tax debt, taxes upwards of 70 or 80%. They are oppressed. They're living under injustice. And I don't think Jesus is saying that's a good thing. In the next line, he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are two ways to read that. It could be that Jesus is saying that in kind of a modern worship song kind of way, like I ache for more of God. But he doesn't say those who hunger and thirst for God. He doesn't say that. 
He says, for righteousness. In Matthew's lexicon, righteousness means a right relationship with God and right relationship with others. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a more likely reading is those who don't have right relationships with God. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you don't yet have a right relationship with God. In our language, uh, it's people who are a mess. People like us who don't have it all together. Here's the thing, like if you already, if you already uh, have righteousness, why would you hunger for it? You have it. Like when I hunger for something, it's because I don't have it yet. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't think Jesus is saying any of that's a good place to be long term. Honestly, <laughs> only Americans and those of us who've only known life in North America would psychologize a list of poverty and sadness and injustice and dysfunction into virtues. Because it's so far from our experience in the bubble of the West. There are virtues on that list for sure. So don't get me wrong there, particularly in the second half. So there's, there's eight blessings, and in the Greek, there's a clear distinction between the first four and the last four. And in the Greek, each grouping has exactly 36 words. And in my opinion, the first four are definitely not virtues, I don't think. The last four are closer to virtues, particularly for sure things like peacemaker, because when Jesus adds, you know, you're children of God. So there's a virtue or two in there, but as a general, uh, general rule overall, this is not a list of virtues to attain to. Secondly, if you're tracking along, it's not a list of commands. So if you read it as a list of virtues, then naturally the next step is to read it as a list of de facto commands. So if this is a virtue, this is something you should go do. And it's not lost in translation. It's right in front of you. They are, there are no commands here. These are blessings. So we'll talk about that in a minute. It's not a command, thankfully, for you to go out and be poor. All right? So you can rest easy. It's, it's not a command to go out and be sad. Don't ever smile. Or go out and get yourself persecuted. Just be an obnoxious jerk and get yourself persecuted for righteousness sake or whatever. So it's not a list of virtues. It's not a list of commands. So what is it? Well, first of all, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. There's a running debate right now, at least in America, on how to best define the gospel. There's a group that defines the gospel simply as justification by grace through faith, not by works. And it is, but there's a growing pushback to that view, saying, wait a minute, that's not how Jesus defined the gospel, and it's not how the early church defined the gospel. Maybe we've dumbed it down. Maybe we've oversimplified it and reduced it to a bumper sticker kind of thing. Remember in part one in the series uh, back in December, we read the verse in Matthew 4, uh, just a chapter before where we are today, where Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So the early church defined the gospel this way. If you turn back to page one of Matthew and look at the top of the page, or maybe you have a title page in your Bible, it says the gospel according to Matthew. So what's the gospel? The gospel is everything from chapter one of Matthew all the way to chapter 28. And you turn to the next book and it says the gospel according to Mark, same thing, chapters 1 through 16. You turn to the next page, gospel of Luke, same thing, gospel according to John, same thing. All of that, all of that is the gospel. So the gospel, according to the early church, is the whole story of Jesus from his birth through his childhood, his baptism in the Jordan River, his teachings, his miracles, his kingdom, his rebellion against the religious hypocrisy, his nonviolent fight with the power brokers of his day, mostly religious people, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his return to the right hand of God. All of that is the gospel. 
So if we expand our definition of the gospel to be Jesus is king, the kingdom is here, it's and it's coming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. If that's our summary of the gospel, then we still get in on justification by grace through faith, not by works. That's a subplot of a much larger narrative. So we actually get it right here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because this is the gospel. And Jesus says the kingdom is coming to all the least likely of people. Not the rich, but who? The poor. Not the happy, but who? The sad, those who mourn. Not the power brokers of the day, but the meek, the powerless. Those that have no voice at all. Not those who have it all together, but those who kind of don't have it together at all. Jesus says those people are blessed, those people are in, they're in the kingdom of God, those people are wrapped in the new reality that Jesus is bringing to the world, and they did not do anything but show up. That's it. When when we turn this list into a list of virtues or a list of commands, it becomes the exact opposite of justification by faith, by grace through faith. It becomes an odd, twisted way of earning some kind of blessing. Just, you know, not through good works, instead through being poor or through being sad or through being weak or by being whatever. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, hey, your life's kind of a mess. Come on into the kingdom. Blessed are you. Hey, you're really sad? Your life isn't the narrative of success? Come on in. You're welcome. Blessed are you. Hey, you're poor on a material level, maybe on a spiritual level? Come on in. Welcome to the kingdom of God. You are blessed. You are welcome here. Then out of that blessing... That's why this this blessing is at the top of the Sermon on the Mount. Out of that place of welcome, out of that place of hospitality, out of that place of acceptance, we did nothing but show up. Now we're in the kingdom. Welcome. So out of that place, we get the Sermon on the Mount. We get Jesus' manifesto for a new way to be human. And you get Jesus saying, okay, now here is how, now that we're all in, here is how you live in discipleship. Here's how you live in your following of me. Here's how you live, if you want, in apprenticeship to me as a follower of my way. So it's kind of in that order. First, blessing. Second, after that, a whole new way to be human. So first, this is the gospel. And secondly, I think there's actually something else going on here as well, something deep and profound that is really easy to miss. I think I missed it for most of my life, in part because, honestly, I didn't want to receive it. I didn't want to dismantle the system and the levels and the categories that I had created. And it's this, that here Jesus is radically redefining who is actually blessed. When you look at this list in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' list here of blessings is countercultural to the core. Doesn't matter what culture you're living in, whether it's first century, uh, you know, Israel or 21st century America, it's countercultural. For example, I did a deep dive. And I went to the Catholic Bible, which I have rarely opened. Um, But this, and some of you are more familiar with this than I am. This from the, uh, if you compare Jesus' list with this list uh, from the book of Sirach, chapter 25. Sirach is a Jewish writing about a century before the time of Jesus. So, and it's actually been included in the Catholic Bible. Some of you, like I say, are more familiar with that. You knew that and before I did. But uh, listen to this list of blessings, this other list of beatitudes a century or so before Jesus showed up. So this, is, uh, this was familiar already around the time of Jesus. So this is a kind of a 
example of the kind of thinking, the kind of popular level thinking. This is how, this is where people were when Jesus shows up with his list. So this is a book of Sirach, chapter 25, verse 7. It says, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. So all right, here's the list. Here's a man, uh, here's a list of, of people who are blessed. So uh, a man who, I forgot to put this one up here, actually, Corey, so just, I'm going to, this is the first one. A man who can rejoice in his children. So first of all, you're a man. Okay? So if you're a man, you're blessed. If you're a woman, not so much. No, I'm actually being, this is the truth. This is first cent, this is a century BC. Okay? So first of all, you're a man, so you're automatically blessed. Second of all, you have a great family. Then, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes, so like all your enemies die, you know, all the people who make life difficult, you just beat them back, and, uh, or whatever, you just kill it in business, and you just crush every deal, and you destroy people, it's great, so keep reading. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife, of course, she's just great, everything's great, it's just fantastic, and this one's really good, the one who does not plow with an ox and ass together, because you hate that, right? I mean, man, I mean, that is just no good at all. The idea is that your business is killing it, okay? You're smart, you're doing well financially, because like, you're doing so well financially, you don't have to pair up an ox and a donkey, because you're wealthy enough to have two oxen. That's what it means. Keep reading. Happy or blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue. So you're like so well-spoken and so articulate. You're in control of your words. You're, you tweet so good, you know? Like you, your social media is on fire, okay? Blessed is the one who has not served an inferior, so you're free. You live in a democracy like America or something like that. You don't live under a tyrant. You get to vote. You have opportunity. You're at the top of the, of the cultural food chain. Keep reading. Happy is the one who finds a friend, so you're not lonely. People want to hang out with you because you're just so cool like that. Happy is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. Like you walk into a room, and it's just like there's a bit of a hush. And people are like, oh, Fred's here. I wonder how, what he's going to say. Everybody be quiet. And people want to hear what you have to say. And when you talk, people are like, wow, it's really interesting. Keep reading. How great is the one who finds wisdom? So you're like a sage, you know, you're like a guru of something and uh, people come to you for advice and, and people want to know what you have to say about this or that or something else. And then it says, but oh, and also, none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. So honest to God, you just love God a ton. It sounds like a really blessed life, right? Minus the ox and ass thing, um, I would say sign me up because that's cool. I mean, I, I qualify for the first one because I'm a man, so I love this list. But this isn't Jesus' list. This is the list he was coming to replace. Jesus' list is nothing like this at all. Jesus is radically redefining who is actually blessed. It's the exact, Jesus' list is the exact opposite of what you would expect, not only in first century, but in 21st century. And I would argue that Jesus' list is more countercultural now than ever before. And we live in a nation that I love. We love our country, right? Because I know you do too. And we all know that our nation is a social experiment and it's not perfect, but it's built largely around some, some, core, some, some biblical values. And then it's also built around the pursuit of happiness. You know, inalienable rights like life, check, liberty, check, and pursuit of happiness. Oh, wait, let me find that one. The problem with this is that we have redefined happiness over the last couple hundred years to where happiness is just feeling good about yourself and your situation. And there's all sorts of problems with that. 
For starters, social science tells us that at least 50% of happiness, get this, is genetics. It's genetically predetermined. Well, that sucks to be you, but they call, they, they call it the happiness set point. So some of you are just born happy. Way to go. Yeah, you did a lot to get that gene there. So the other half of people hate you for having that gene, okay? No, they don't hate you, they're just really jealous of you. It's like, congratulations, you have the right genetic code, you won the happy gene lottery, good for you, congratulations, you are blessed. But secondly, I mean, that's a thing. Secondly, happiness is all about comparison. So if you have more than the status quo, or more than you were expecting, then you're happy. Think about this, it's why human beings live for thousands of years without running water, without electricity, without a sewer system. We went outside to go to the bathroom and we were happy. But now, if I don't have the new iPhone, and I have a new smart TV, my TV is like two years old, come on. And if our Wi-Fi is under a zillion megs, and if Duncan gets our $4 coffee order wrong, all of a sudden we just feel like my life is so empty. My life is over, it's so frustrating. It's the end of the world, my life sucks. The greatest problem with happiness is that we've redefined it to where it's based on good circumstances. Listen, according to how we define good circumstances. The word happiness comes from the old English word happenstance, which means what happens to you. Hmm. So the problem, here's the problem with this. For the most part, have you found this to be true? that circumstances tend to be out of your control. Don't you hate that? Amen. I hate that. I'm a control freak. I am not a fan of that. So what happens then is that when everything goes well, you're happy, but what about when everything does not go well? So my point is that we define happiness as feeling good about ourselves and good about our situation, and then we go out and we, I don't know, go to college or whatever, we chase after it, life happens, you hit 30, all your dreams didn't come true. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to spoil that for any of you there who are still there working on that. You're still just trying to figure out what to do with your life, and you finally, you know, get a ring on her finger, and you're like, whoa, and then it's like, uh, oh, she was a letdown, or he was a loser, and you don't say that out loud, but, you know, wow, that wasn't so great after all, I can't believe I waited for that, and your marriage dies, and or man, I started my business after years of dreaming and I just really tried and I gave it my all and I was all in and then it went belly up and now I'm in debt and whatever, life just happens. And there's lots of great stuff in life that we celebrate and there's lots of less than great stuff in life that we don't celebrate at all, right? And we have no clue what to do with that because our whole life, if we're honest, our whole culture is built around the pursuit of happiness. And now given your circumstances, you don't know if you can even be happy. Or should you even? Jesus seems to be saying, well, if you're poor and you're sad and you're oppressed and you're persecuted, way to go. You got it all. Congratulations. The only way to make sense of Jesus' uh, blessings is through the framework, through the lens of the kingdom of God. Otherwise, Jesus is out of his mind, right? I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, back on December 15th, because we've got to keep in mind that the kingdom of God is both a present reality and a future hope. So we have to learn to wrap our heads around that. So there's a tension there. There's tension in the already and not here yet. We can see that tension in the language right in the Beatitudes. There are eight blessings. The first one and the last one are in the present tense. It says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the middle six are all in the future tense. Verse 4 says, blessed are those who mourn, for they what? Will be comforted. Verse 5, they will inherit the earth. Verse 6, they will be filled. Verse 7, they will be shown mercy. So on down the list, you see this tension right here in the list between the present and the future and what theologians call the now and the not yet. And we live in this tension in this time between the world as it was before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the world as it will be at the return of Jesus when he comes to make all things new. We live between these two realities. In the world as it is, this list right here in Matthew 5, listen, is not always true. In the world that we live in, the meek do not always inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are not always filled. One day they'll always be true. In the meantime, we live in this tension with blessing for today and with hope for tomorrow. I've been sitting in this text for a few weeks and I've started working on this around the 1st of December. And you're like, this is what you came up with? I know, but it's kind of consumed me and it's caused me to look a lot of, at a lot of my experience in a new and fresh way. And if you're here today and you don't find yourself on this list anywhere, first of all, feel the responsibility. The odds are that there are people around you today who are on this list. People who are poor. People who are sad. People who are experiencing injustice or oppression of some kind. Who don't have it all together. What would it look like for you and I to leverage our happiness on behalf of those who have less than us? Feel the responsibility. If you're not on the list, fantastic. Celebrate that. Thank God and be generous with others in need. But for those of you who are on this list, man, something stood out. You're like, that's where I'm stuck right now. You got at least one. Or maybe you're like, man, I'm four for eight. I'm doing great. You're on this list in some way, shape, or form. Here's what I want to say to you. You live in a culture, and I would argue even a church culture, that says you are not blessed right now. Because the American narrative goes back to the pursuit of happiness, the land of opportunity, a nation of immigrants, and, you know, come pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The American narrative is one of successes. You know, it's a narrative linear trajectory, upward mobility, upward to the right. Each year, each decade, each generation, we move forward. We get more money. We get more wealth. We get more power. We get more influence. It's the upward mobility narrative. And this has found its way into the church. The way that the church has been, been shaped by consumerism. So let's just be honest about the reality of life. If we buy into that narrative, that you have a right to be happy, that you deserve to be happy, that God wants you to be happy. If that's true, then what do we do? We pursue our own happiness, right? So then what happens when that's not your story? Something happens and you aren't rich or skinny or beautiful or smart, or you didn't get into the right college, or you didn't get married by 25, or you did, but it was hard and it didn't work out and you got that baggage, or all of a sudden your life just, that up, there is no, it doesn't fit the upward mobility linear American script. What then? What then is the kingdom of God? I just want you to hear in a, in a culture and even in a religious culture that says you're not blessed, I just want you to hear that you are. And here's the thing, as I try to wrap this up, 
this is so mind-bending for me, and if it's a bit ambiguous today, I apologize because I'm working this out in my own life, and um, I think that what Jesus is saying here is we're not blessed in spite of our pain. We're blessed in our pain. So when I say blessed, what I don't mean, when I don't mean when I say you're blessed, I don't mean count your blessings. It could be much worse. Look on the bright side. All things happen for a reason. Don't compare yourself to someone else. Don't compare yourself to their Instagram. That's all fine advice. But uh, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's saying, hey, you're blessed. Look on the bright side. I think what he's saying is that there is a blessing for you if you will receive it in your pain, not just in spite of it. And I don't think he's saying your pain is a good thing. I don't think he's saying, aren't you glad I brought this on? I don't think he's saying that poverty is good. I don't think he's saying that mourning is good or that oppression is good or that dysfunction is good at all. I think he's saying that somewhere under the rubble of all of that, there is a blessing for you if you will receive it. Amen. You know how things work during Jesus' ministry, right? People came to Jesus poor, and they went away rich, right? No, they went away still poor. But now they were blessed. They came to him sad, and my guess is that people came to him sad and they were grieving the death of a spouse or a child or a family member, that after their encounter with Jesus, they went away still sad about that, but now they were blessed. They came to him under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and they went away still under the oppression of the Roman Empire, but now they were blessed. I think there's something there. I think that what Jesus is calling us to embrace is this blessing that God has called us to in our pain. And there's something in here that's really easy to miss, but the here and now, in the present, there's blessing. There's blessing for whatever your pain is in your life. And if you aren't experiencing any of these things on Jesus' list that we see as negatives, enjoy your season right now. Like go take somebody out to lunch today and be an encouragement to them. But if you're on this list, if you can identify with something on this list, there's a blessing for you in it now. You don't have to wait to get to the other side of it. And for tomorrow, there's hope. And we don't talk about this enough, probably, and I think because we forget about it, honestly. But one day, all the sad things will become untrue. One day, Jesus will rule over every square inch. And everything will be as God intended it to be. There'll be no gap between the rich and the poor. There'll be no mourning. There'll be no sadness. There'll be no pain. In the language of the New Testament, the old order of things has passed away. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your destiny. That's your future. That's the end of your story, which is kind of the beginning of your story. And it's not a linear thing, it's a forward, but it's forward motion. It's healing. It's renewal, not only for the world, but... For your life. That's the hope of Jesus. So let's live in the present. Let's live with an awareness of his blessing and in this hope. Let's pray together. The band's going to come while I get ready to pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the words of Jesus in this great teaching in Matthew.
For those of us who find it uh, overly familiar, I pray that you'd breathe freshness into it. They would be open uh, to a, maybe a new revelation, maybe a, uh, a new and perhaps more accurate way of interpreting and applying the words of Jesus. We want to be kingdom people. We want to live and surrender the, to King Jesus. And so, God, I pray that these values would find their way into our lives, as, as countercultural as they may be. Pray for the people who, in this room, who saw themselves on this list of in the Beatitudes, and I pray that today they'd be more aware than ever of your presence and of the hope that you're communicating to them, you're bringing to them. And for those of us, Lord, who um, are like, yeah, maybe I was there once, or you know, right now, things are good, I pray that we would uh, put ourselves in a position of uh, blessing and encouragement to others. For all this, God, we just thank you and give you praise and glory in Jesus' name.